This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Helen Naylor. After a lifetime spent caring for her disabled parents, Helen had her own children and began to suspect her mum was deliberately pretending to be unwell. She began reading her mother's 55 years worth of diaries after her death in 2016 and discovered her mum's deception went far beyond anything she had imagined. She wrote my mother, Munchausen's, and me in the aftermath piecing together the truth about her parents, her childhood. And that is your normal. The abnormal is your normal. Um, it's, it's foundational. You can't just say, oh, well, that was the first 30 years of my life. I'll just forget about that. She totally told me who I was and what I was. She told me what I liked and what I didn't like. From birth, my mum saw me as this enormous burden. Yeah, she doesn't talk about wanting children or liking children or anything. She just writes, one day, I decided I was pregnant. And that's <laughs> that's my conception story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I did start to notice her slurring her speech. She became very paranoid. To be fair, it was the Parkinson's nurses who realised that she was sort of playing them off each other to get these more and more drugs. I always have these sort of three versions of truth going through all of my memories. So I've got my recollections, my mum's stories, and then my mum's diaries. I hope that my story gives people hope. How are you? Thanks for <laughs> Thank coming you. on the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. You're welcome. So because the podcast is called Unbroken, Healing Through Storytelling, the first question that I ask all of my guests is, what does that word unbroken mean to you? So I'm going to be a bit obtuse and I'm going to start with what I don't think it is. Okay. So, uh, I've been told um, quite a few times to, that I need to get over what happened to me and leave it in the past and move on, focus on the future sort of thing. And I'm sure this is true for everyone who suffered abuse, but especially when you've grown up in an abusive um, environment through childhood and that is your normal the abnormal is your normal um, it's it's foundational you can't just say oh well that was the first 30 years of my life I'll just forget about that and start afresh that isn't how it works um, so for me unbroken means moving forward with what has happened to me taking that experience and almost growing around it you know that experience has shaped me and it will continue to shape me but it hasn't defeated me and I think that's that's what I think unbroken is that that knowledge and that hope that there is goodness and life and um, joy and happiness for me in the future. Well, you are living proof that that is true. It has not defeated you. And I've read yeah. your, your brilliant book, and yeah, it was shocking at times. And kind of one of the very first things that you write is that society takes it for granted that mothers are good. But your experience was very different of your mum. Would you like to briefly tell us um, what life was like growing up with your mum? Yes, yeah, so... Until about 10 years ago, I would have told you that my, I grew up with two disabled parents and um, 
you know, as such, I became a, a sort of carer for them. You know, I was very lucky in a way. We were very middle class. And so we had a cleaner and a gardener and all those sort of things. So I didn't have to do a lot around the house, but I had an enormous emotional responsibility for my parents. And um, that wasn't just something that I felt. That was something that they put on me as well. There was a real feeling that I was responsible for their happiness. I was responsible um, for their, you know, their their care and their future. Um, and so I felt a huge weight upon me growing up. Um, and my mum was quite down on me, I guess, is the easiest way to put it. Um, you know, she also used to say things to me about me being fat and ugly. She'd point out things that were wrong with me. Um, and I grew up really believing that I was a failure, that I'd failed my parents. and that. But it is just like a form of brainwashing. Or absolutely. Or, or gaslighting. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. She totally told me who I was and what I was. Um, she told me what I liked and what I didn't like. And you know, perhaps in another situation, you wouldn't take that. But when you're a child and when it's your mum saying this to you, you just take it 100 percent and don't even question it. You know, down to things like she told me what my favourite food was. And literally until about five years ago, I didn't know what my favourite food was because it's so ingrained yeah. within me. The choices and the were made for you. Me. And you yeah. were an only child as well. So you had no one else to, to bounce this off, did you? No, and also she'd um, separated us from the rest of the family. So we were very isolated. It was pretty much me, my mum and my dad. And that was, that was my world. And she started to um, be ill from as early as you can remember. She had mm. ME, so she says. I mean, it's, it's hard to know what was right and what, what wasn't right after reading your book. Yes. Um, so my dad uh, developed real heart and lung problems when I was about seven. And coincidentally, at the same time, my mum developed ME. And even though my dad was more seriously ill, we, we knew that his problems could, could kill him. Mm -hmm. It was mum whose uh, disabilities shaped our whole life. You know, everything was about uh, making sure she got the rest, um, making she, sure she got the... Um, you know, motorized scooters and things. I had to take her shopping. I had to, you know, um, make sure that she was getting everything she wanted. And, and she would have rests in the afternoons. Um, so she would go to bed um, all afternoon. So from the time I was seven until I, I left home, um, every afternoon I was just left to, my dad would go down the pub, my mum would go to bed and that was it. I was just left to get on with it. And there was nothing, you know, put in, for me for my safety let alone from for my entertainment um and they just had a very strange attitude towards that sort of thing so there's there was one moment when I was um I think I was 10 and um me and my friend my friend had come over and we were playing downstairs my mum was in bed my dad was out and we heard this um noise in the kitchen and first of all we thought it was burglar but I didn't think for a second that I should get my mum. I thought, oh, right, I need to go and, and deal with this situation. Um, and we went into the kitchen and actually the washing machine had caught fire and it was sparking and, and smoking. Um, and I ran up to my mum to tell her and she told me to go and turn it off. So she expected a primary school age child and her friend to deal with this situation rather than you know, you'd say get out of the house, wouldn't you? It's not, it's not a big, um, you know, you don't need to think about it, do you? Um, 
and you know there were a lot of things like that like that situation you know on um holiday she um my mum would go to bed my dad would go to the bar and they'd just leave me to wander the hotel um or send me off with strangers um and in fact it, you discovered when you were a, a baby that actually from reading the diaries you were yeah. actually quite neglected quite yeah. really just left while they were um also on holiday or you left alone in, in hotel rooms you were yeah. fed takeaways and and whiskies and any kind of medical emergencies were ignored and yeah this was as just a not that as tenure defenses but this is just as a, a tiny baby that is there mm. to be cared for yeah i think you know having read the diaries from from birth my mum saw me as this enormous burden she drugged me yeah like you said she, she there was a lot of when I was a week old, she left me in the cot to go shopping. Um, when they went on holiday, I was I was six months old, and um, they left me in the hotel room, went down for dinner, and then went out to the beach until about eleven o'clock in the evening. And <laughs> I mean, there was no baby monitor, but it didn't really matter anyway because it wouldn't have worked that far anyway. Um, it kind of leaves you speechless, doesn't it? You're like, totally. How can you respond to that? So you're basically. Um, you were a nuisance. You were held responsible Absolutely. for her happiness. You destroyed mm-hmm. all that by coming along. So it makes you wonder, why did she choose to be a mum? Why did she get a child? Absolutely. I, I really don't know. I mean, it's quite fascinating looking at her diaries because she doesn't mention babies or, or children at all. So she was in her mid-30s when she had me, which, you know, in the early 80s was was quite late in life. And, um, and uh yeah, she doesn't talk about wanting children or liking children or anything. She just writes, one day, I decided I was pregnant. And that's, <laughs> that's my conception story. Okay. okay. <laughs> it might a bit more than that, but okay. <laughs> yeah, so it, it is really interesting. I, I wonder if it was something she felt she had to prove or um, I don't know. I, I really don't know. To appear to be a normal family like most people, have a yeah. married, have a child and just to keep yeah. appearances. But she even went on to um, run the ME group, didn't she? She was like she the, the chair of the group and was held in high esteem. But I, I looked in your book for the list of many illnesses that she had or claimed to have. There was ME, glandular fever twice, blood clot in her foot, detached retina, Trapped nerve, prolapse, abscess, IBS, tennis elbow, MSG poisoning, sprain vertebrae, swine flu, Parkinson's. It was a huge list for one person's life, but it was it was a Parkinson's that really when things started to unravel, wasn't it? Because the symptoms didn't quite match up with the illness, really, did it? Yeah, so that's right. I was I was really interested when I read her diaries. I thought there was going to be a start point to all her medical mm-hmm. issues, but it, there wasn't. It was from when she well, the diaries start when she's twelve, and it starts from there. Her talking about having a temperature that could kill her, um, you know, sort of medical problems that a young woman probably, you know, a healthy young woman wouldn't have to deal with really. Um, but yes, it wasn't until she started um, with the Parkinson's, which was um, about the same time that I became pregnant with my son. Um, and she was sort of obsessed with it. And in a way that me and her friends found really odd, um, because it wasn't like she was worried. It wasn't like she was concerned about what was going on. It was like she was loving every second of it. That She actually found joy and energy 
in in being ill and um it was just very obvious but the real downfall for her was that um you know with me you don't get a lot of treatment you don't get a lot of um observation there are no tests or anything like that for it um and it's quite a a woolly disease if you like it, it you can't pin it down mm-hmm. um people struggle with all sorts of symptoms uh, whereas with parkinson's there's the specific tests there's specific symptoms you can't just walk in and shake and say look i have parkinson's that's but not how did, it works she did do shaking didn't which is exactly what she did and um it took a little while so for for a while her she was initially told that her um uh parkinson's was was mild parkinsonism and that it would never um if she'd have she'd have 10 years of life ahead of her as normal which would take her into her mid-70s and and she you know it was never going to be really debilitating for her. Um, but very quickly, she declined and declined and they were upping her drugs all the time. She basically had a direct line to the, to the Parkinson's and nurse. for someone that doesn't have Parkinson's to take all of these drugs, I imagine that would then cause side effects as well. So I did start to notice her slurring her speech. She became very paranoid. To be fair, it was the Parkinson's nurses who realised that she was sort of playing them off each other to get these more and more drugs. And I think the real clincher for me was when, um, you know, when faced with that by the Parkinson's nurse, she went ballistic. You know, this nice middle-class Christian woman suddenly is screaming and shouting and swearing at the nurses and demanding that she have her drugs. And that was a real moment for all of us that was like, that is not normal. <laughs> yes, so, I mean, do you have, because you didn't get an actual diagnosis of your mum, did you? No. This is all your, your thoughts, um, yeah. just with the evidence and her diaries backing up your thoughts. And some of her friends agreed with you, but some of them she had done a number on and turned them against you really you were painted as this awful daughter by some of them weren't you but some of them believed you so how you were really caught in the middle in all of it yeah it was a really difficult time um yeah I'm I feel very lucky that there were her close friends who could see what I could see um you know we were together saying this isn't right and it wasn't uh, in judgment it was more of we've got to get her help yes. we've got to get her psychological help because this isn't right and you know she's hurting herself she's harming herself yeah it must have validated what you felt when they openly said to you listen Helen we've watched your mum and it, it, it doesn't match up really does it it's not congruent yeah. and it's it's interesting how much sort of um I suppose power um that situation has because you that's not your first thought. When you meet someone with a disability, your first thought isn't they're faking it. Um, and to have that thought and just be like, this is so not right. Um, it takes a lot of guts to say, actually, I need to question this. Um, and so we were all very nervous about saying to each other, do you think this is real? And even though it was so obvious that, you know, she was making it up. Mm-hmm. And it was after your your father passed away, she decided to leave the family home didn't she she kind of got you to kind of help pack it up and she went at a young age to a care home yeah she did it 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 was a um a residential um warden assisted supported um, living supported living yeah yeah, sort of thing she went to initially but she was only there for about a year 
Um, and she started uh, when she was faced by the Parkinson's nurse with with the evidence that the Parkinson's wasn't real. Um, she started having falls and she was having up to 100 falls a month. Um, and eventually she was admitted to hospital uh, for one of these. Um, and uh, she said that she couldn't walk. Um, and that was it. So she had to go to a care home after that. But the feelings were in the beginning that when she was found, when she said that she'd been on the floor for days, that they, they felt quite staged, didn't they? That she was in a absolutely it was, position and she wasn't dehydrated yeah. or any of the rest of it. No, and, and her descriptions of it changed. You know, she'd say to one person, oh, I've been lying on the floor for an hour. And another person, oh, I've been lying on the floor for three days. And it was all very predictable. It, you know, we all got to the point where we were like, if we were going to see her, we wouldn't tell her because we knew if we did, there'd be a drama, there'd be some sort of thing going on. Um, yeah, so it, it was just becoming very obvious. And her friends who chose to believe her right up to the end, how do they feel now that you've written the book and you've spoken out about your mum and her illness? Have they changed their tune or do they still support her and her illnesses? I honestly don't know. Don't they know. haven't been in touch with okay. me. I'll tell you what, though, I have heard from... Um, uh, some people who were around since writing the book, people mm-hmm. have got in touch with me. And, um, you know, I've had people apologize to me, um, probably unnecessarily, to be fair, you know, like my school friends, parents and things and sa- who said, you know, we knew something was wrong, but we didn't know what and we should have intervened. I mean, what could they have done? They literally couldn't have done anything. But but it's really interesting that you only saw a little bit of the puzzle. So no one ever saw the whole thing and put it all together. I mean, not even me. So. <laughs> and I was living with her. So. You, you, you never used to call it abuse or neglect, no. did you? It was only as you became a mum and you, you found your husband and found him. It sounds like he was hiding somewhere. <laughs> you met your husband. that you, you slowly began to wake up to what a normal relationship in a, with a partner or being a mum is all about. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, isn't it? Like you totally accept things. Uh, you know, there was there's a story about um, my mum essentially breaking my arm and I was about two. And I used to find that funny. And it wasn't until I had my own children that I was like, that is so not funny. Um, why have I been laughing along with her about this abuse? It's abuse. And this is something that she told you or this is something that you read in her diary? Oh, it's a really interesting story, actually, because it kind of melds truth together. So I I always have these sort of three versions of truth going through all of my memories. Mm -hmm. So I've got my recollections, my mum's stories, and then my mum's diaries. Mm -hmm. And that's without anyone else being there. Um, Yeah, so in this this story, if you like, um, anecdote. So what I remember was that uh, I remember playing at my friend's house and I was pretending to paint the wall and I fell off. I, I, in my head, I thought I was about four um, and I fell off and I was taken to hospital. And my mum told me that when I got to hospital, the doctor said she hasn't broken her arm, but she did break it three months ago and that she and my dad were questioned by social services. I don't know if that's true. Um, Yeah, and my mum used to tell me it was when I was four. But when I went through the diaries, I found out I wasn't four. I was actually two. And the way my mum explained the breaking of my arm was that she said she'd been putting me into the car uh, three months earlier. And 
as she closed the door of the car, I reached back to oh. grab it and she cl- shut it on my arm. And she said that I stopped crying after a while. So she didn't bother getting me any medical care. But, you know, when you have your own children, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know about anyone else, but my children certainly didn't start closing the door on their own or even attempting to until they were much, much, much yeah. older. Yeah. Um, so that whole story. you would story, be strapped into your seat, wouldn't you? So. Well, yeah. And I mean, children are lazy. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that just didn't happen. So I will never know the truth of what happened with that. But it's just such an interesting example of this idea of truth and what is my truth? What is my identity? What is my past? You know, I'm not 100% sure on any of that. Yes, I'm going to say, what, what did it do to you? Because it, it painted a very different picture for you when you woke up and you read all these diaries and you discovered that your whole childhood was founded on lies, really, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean... It was devastating reading the diaries. Um, And I I think especially because at that point, my children were of a similar age to the Mm -hmm. bits I was reading about, the the abuse I just hadn't known about. Um, It was really awful. But but to be honest, the most mind-twisting part of it was uh, when my mum was still alive and when I realised that the Emmy had been made up and that it wasn't real because I'd sacrificed so much for her and I'd... You know, it's a foundation of my life. You know, I went from saying, as I started with, you know, I have, I grew up with two disabled parents. Well, that wasn't true. You know, nothing I sacrificed, nothing I went through or gave up was necessary. It was all based on a lie. And I went into a really dark place. Um, it was as if literally my world had been turned upside down and I didn't know who I could trust or what was true. And when you don't know that, it's just a horrific place to live. Yes, um, I remember in the book that you really struggled with self-hate mm, and self-harm yeah. and couldn't sleep because it's just that everything's pulled away from underneath you really, isn't it? What you yeah. thought was is no longer and it's it's all changed. What, and it was going on in front of you as well. So you were yeah, in it, it was, and you yeah. didn't know you were in it. Yeah, I didn't even know I wasn't even halfway through it. Yeah, it was it was a really hard time. And I think, as you mentioned before, the idea that, um, you know, mothers are good. Um, you know, I did have friends saying to me, this can't be true. You know, it, it couldn't possibly be true because she's your mum. You know, she's she loves you. So you must have got it wrong. You know, and when you don't know where the truth lies, that's really difficult because then you're thinking, are they right? Or is this right? Or is the Parkinson's nurse right? Or, you know, what is real? Um, it's really confusing, isn't it? Really, yeah. Yeah, and, it was really hard. I mean, listening, it makes me kind of feel dizzy. So it must just... That's how just I felt. That's how I felt. Spinning, yeah. 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 Um, and she kind of also put you off from being a mum yourself, didn't she? She said that yeah. you, her becoming a mum with you ruined her life and yeah. your... Your body wasn't strong enough. Is that one of the things that she said to you? Yeah. So, I mean, that was the first moment I was like, hold on, something isn't right here. And I uh, had a miscarriage with my first pregnancy and um, I was just looking to her for some support and some care. And I said, oh, do you think I'll ever have a baby? And we'd been trying for a little while by that point. And she said to me, "Um, no, you'll never have a baby because your body isn't strong enough um, to carry it. And it was just one of those moments when you're like, 
no, that's definitely not what you're supposed to say. That's not that's not a slip up. That's something really, really you telling. Were, what was really hard to to read was you were like um, a very loyal daughter, like a loyal dog that just used to go back. You just wanted her to love you. <laughs> just wanted it to be not be how you were thinking. And you just every time you kept going back to her in the in the care home or into her home or. She just would behave badly and then slowly, slowly you could see the light dawning on you. But it was just so painful to watch you keep going back till eventually you just had to decide, that's it. I, I can't do it anymore. I've, I've yeah. had enough. Yeah, I mean, I never faced her with anything. I was so scared of her. Um, and I didn't really realise how afraid I was of her until, you know, towards the end of her life. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't want it to be true. I wanted her to love me. I wanted um, us to be close. And I don't think I would have cut contact unless I'd had my children, to be quite honest, because it got to the point where she was affecting um, affecting them and affecting my relationship with them. And I was like, no, that's too far. Um, yeah. And when was the last time you, you saw her? How long was it before she passed away? Um, it was a about 20 months I think it was about 20 months um yeah so that was it was really difficult because I was still trying to make sure that she was getting the right care um but from a distance yes and um yeah that was and really you were, tough you would still be called by the people in hospital or the or the care home but yeah yet you you couldn't be part of it and I didn't have any responsibility over her I didn't have any you know I didn't have power of attorney or anything like that um so it was really weird. It, it, you know, I feel like I was parented, you know, made into the parent as a child. I, I was responsible for them instead of it being the other way around. And then I was in this weird situation in my 30s where I was being told I was responsible for her again, mm-hmm. even though, you know, you know, I had no power over her. I wasn't there. I wasn't I wasn't in charge of her. And you're just thinking, you know, I was just thinking, she's an adult why are you telling me this you know we, we've agreed she's got mental capacity so what do you want me to do about it um and I think that that was a real problem with the doctors that I was facing at the end um was that they're not set up for people to lie to them obviously no, um, they seem to take it all on board didn't they well they even when they knew yeah. yeah they they didn't listen to me but even when they knew um, they couldn't do anything because she was presenting symptoms. She wanted a certain thing and they were set up to listen to her and give her what she wanted. So there was no sort of way out of that. Um, and there is so much set up for patient confidentiality, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously is great in the right circumstance. But in this one, it meant that they didn't listen to her friends. They didn't listen to her family. And um we couldn't get any information about what, what was happening. And I guess any treatment for the illness she didn't have was just going to weaken her, really, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, totally. But you got to a place where you were able to forgive her, not really, I guess, for her, but to mm. let, I mean, I always say it's, it kind of cut the chains that linked me to whatever yes. happened to me, but to let go of the grip, really, wasn't it, that it had on you? Yeah, that's exactly how I'd think about it is, is, you know, got rid of those chains that that held me to her. And I don't know about for you, but for me, it's an ongoing process. So things will come up and I'll sort of have to go through the process of forgiving her 
again, um, you know, my son just started secondary school and that was a real big thing for me. Um, and again, it's like, oh gosh, that was awful. And she was awful then. And having to forgive her again. Um, so it's all and these it's, constant triggers of yeah. being a parent and watching it through their eyes. But what I love about your book, <laughs> I'll read you a little bit from near the end. If I can read it without crying, because it really made me cry. <laughs> because of how your mum treated you and how she made you feel, despite all of that, you, you are just come out amazing. And you say, but I will create the best life I can for me and my family. Look, I'm going already. I will love where she did not. I will love wholeheartedly and sincerely, even though it terrifies me to be vulnerable. And that, to me, it's your greatest revenge, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And to have built a life that she didn't want me to have. I mean, that's, yeah. And then, you, then you wonder, where is your capacity to love? Where does that come from? It all goes into that nature nurture thing because you didn't mm. learn it from her. I, I know you had a closer relationship with your dad. but um, Yeah, he was quite distant though, to be honest. It is, it's an interesting thing. But I wonder if, you know, caring for them made me into a more caring person. Um you know, when there's certain things, um, she, had, she had a real veto over everything that I did and everywhere I went and all of that kind of thing. And she vetoed the university I wanted to go to, which I'm really angry about. But then I met my husband there. So how yes. can I be angry about it? You <laughs> yes. know, I've got this amazing life now, you know. So it, it all sort of, I don't know. And I imagine we can't speak yeah. on his behalf, but it must have been hard for him to see the impact it was having on you because he would visit with you as well and, and mm. stay there when you were allowed to stay in the house. And for him to, to see what it was like, it uh, yeah, would be really interesting to hear his point of view, what he saw in the early days when he first met you. I think what me and my mum's friends and my husband would say is that she was always very eccentric. Mm-hmm. So you kind of took the eccentricity and the sort of disabilities became part of that. Um, But yes, as it became more obvious, I mean, he didn't like her and, you know, the relationship between them was very difficult. Um, But I think he's a much more black and white person than I am. So he was kind of like, just don't have anything more to do with her, Um, (laughs) which is great if that's how you work, but that's not how I worked. And I think there was a huge amount of guilt and duty that I felt because I'm an only child as well. And a former psychotherapist. So even in trauma, we have a bond. You have a bond Mm. attachment to your mother, even though she's the one that harmed Mm. you. And it's it's not so easy to break that bond, whether it's a negative one or a positive one. It's it's not easy. And you were attached to her in many, many layers, many different and unique ways. So what is your understanding or your definition? Let me try and say the word probably now. Munchausen's. I got it. I got it right. <laughs> oh, it's, um, it's quite interesting, actually, because it's the, the opposite of hypochondria. <laughs> so it's not being afraid of illness. It's, okay. it's wanting illness. Ill. And um, that's often because it gives you a sort of status. You know, as an, as an ill person, you get a lot of sympathy, you get a lot of attention. Um, you know, an example would be my mum kept my dad's hospital notes after he died to look through um, regularly. And it, it was he was so ill. It was a massive, a massive folder. And it was sort of that obsession and that love of, of illness and, and wanting to be able to get as much attention as possible. And do you have theories why she became like this or what, where it stemmed from? Do you have a thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean... 
like I said, when I began reading the diaries, I thought I was going to find an event that triggered all this. Um, and, you know, in her stories to me, she'd said that she'd had this amazing life and then I was born. And so I was kind of looking for the trigger there. But, you know, she actually, nothing changed in a way. Um, and from when she was certainly 12, this is how she worked. This, You know, she's very cold the whole way through the diaries. There's no sort of teenage angst. She doesn't talk about love. She's very cold towards in the way she writes about her friends and her parents and my even my dad. Um, you know, there's no sort of love story. It's just it's a real of, disconnect, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, such a disconnect. She's so cold. Um, and you know, she'll she'd talk about things like, oh, the weather was nice, um, and my dad's in hospital with, you know something really hideously wrong with him <laughs> it doesn't go together it's um it's very interesting so I kind of think that this is who she was you know there certainly were events in her past which could have um made it worse um so for example her her mum had a big operation when she was young um my uh, granddad was a pharmacist that can also be a bit of a trigger um but I have an aunt, my mum's sister, who, who doesn't have Munchausen's. <laughs> so was she the aunt that wasn't allowed to see you? That was you... the aunt who wasn't allowed to see me. And so, you know, there must have been something within my mum that sort of, yeah, grew into this. And I think there's so much more as I look at her more. Um, you know, I think it was probably a symptom of a personality disorder. Um, I think she had narcissistic personality disorder. And Munchausen's can be a symptom of that, especially in women, that um, it's rather than the Donald Trump sort of narcissist that we think of. It's it's more um, a victim, someone who's vulnerable and can attract people to them to do things for them. Yeah. And finding out this information that, you know, there's traits of narcissism, did that help you when you were, you know, researching it to go, actually, yeah, that sounds like my mum and that sounds like my mum and that sounds like my mum, even though she never got the actual diagnosis, you're mm. very convinced this is really what she had. Yeah, it's really helpful for me. I mean, at first I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this can't be true. This can't be right. Um, but yeah, over time I've realised that that's what happened and and it has helped me I know it can it's a neat box and I understand that life is more messy than that and people are more complex than that but it's helpful for me to think of her in that way um to make sense of what happened to me in some ways I guess it's really sad that somebody wanted to be ill and to get attention from being ill and would do anything to convince mm. people and to the detriment of her child and her husband and family and friends and cut themselves off just to be ill there's, there's mm. a real depth of sadness and just yeah. such a, a shallow existence for your mum as well totally she potential. could have had an amazing life yeah. um you know she was a really intelligent woman she could have had an amazing career yeah had an amazing life and she chose to die a really awful death alone and that's hor that's a horrible way to go. You know, I do, I do, I don't, I'm not sure I can say I pity her, but it, it, it is awful. It, I guess it's just about understanding, isn't it? And then yeah, yeah. And from the understanding that, yeah, it wasn't a normal path that she chose for herself, no. whether that was, it's down to mental health issues or whether uh, it's hard to say if it's a personality trait. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's so complex, isn't it? And yes. I, I think there's, I found out there's something like two experts in Munchausen's in the world. <laughs> and, you know, it's just not very understood. 
Um, but the interesting thing is I've had so many emails from people saying, you've just explained my life to me or, oh, my goodness, this is they more. They recognise a lot of themselves in your story. Yeah. And I think it's a lot more common than we we expect it to be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, things just aren't set up for for people who are going to try and cheat the system. And when we first started, we talked about how society say mothers are meant to be good. And I've interviewed another author, Louise Beach, when her memoir came out, Daffodils, and she made the decision to stop seeing her mum. She cut mm. all contact. Her mother was also a narcissistic. And she said she had so many people messaging her, telling her, I made that decision as well. It was the healthiest decision I've ever made. And my mum was this and my... And yeah, we don't... Um, look at mums in that way do we we assume no. that they'll be nurturing and caring and, and want the best for us rather than you know not behave in the best way so she was shocked how much it was out there as well mm. I think it's really interesting you know that there was something that I was told when I was a young mum that um you should tell your children that if they get lost they should look for another mum and go to that person as if you're intrinsically good because you're a mum. You must be safe. You must be good. And that's that's so interesting when you've come out of something like I have. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to trust anyone with, with you know, my mum mm -hmm. having a responsibility over someone else's children. So, yeah. Who did you tell your children to go to? <laughs> or you never had I don't know why I haven't faced it. I think, <laughs> I, think oh, I was like, ooh, just don't get lost. <laughs> Best advice, don't get lost. So, kind of at the end now anyway, so is there anything that you would like to say that you haven't or would you like to leave some advice for people that are listening that it is maybe triggering something for them? What would you like to say or find yeah, I, I think I want to say, you know, there's a lot of pressure out there for um, children and I'm going to say daughters in particular to, you know, care for their mums and, and put up with a lot of rubbish. And... You know, I don't think going no contact with your parent is ever easy, but sometimes it is for your own health and for your own mental strength, really. And that there shouldn't be shame in that, actually, that, that yeah, it's, it's a really hard decision. And I don't think I, I've heard of anyone doing it lightly. I hope that my story gives people hope and encouragement that there is, there is more that we can come out of situations that are complex and abusive and really tricky and move forward, um, you know, and on to greater things. You know, we don't well, have to stay there. Having read it and having met you, I absolutely know that you are shining now and you have created a wonderful life with your husband and your children. And you are, you're living your best life. So you are, you are full of hope. So thank you so much, Helen, for coming on and sharing your story with us. And I will stick all the details in the show notes about your book and everything for people to, to buy it. It's a really great read. So thanks again for coming on. Unbroken healing through storytelling. If you haven't already, go on, download, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us get this important and life-changing message out to as many people as possible. There is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon. Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Playing now on all the main platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher for Android, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and here. Play Unbroken, the podcast with Madeline Black.